0: Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you are listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Episode 204, if you can believe it, it's the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. It's been a while. The last regular episode that I did was Stan Evans. That went out about a month ago, but that was nearly two months since I recorded that one. I did the Type 2 with Jenna, obviously, and then I did an episode of Chris Burkhard the other week, but that went out to paid subscribers only, although I might put that out at some point for, for the rest of you scummers, Um and then I missed a week because I was on a stag do, so next thing you know it's the 7th of April and you've not done an episode for a while, but I'm back with this extremely. Fascinating, and I think it's fair to say, cerebral conversation with author Stephen Kotler, which has been a long time coming, this one, because I was pitched this by not one, but two PRs helping Stephen promote his new book, Nar Country, more on that title in a moment. Um, And this they first got in touch, I think it was probably like November, and um, I thought about it, as long-term listeners to the show will know, I do tend to steer clear of doing the PR junket interviews especially when it's with somebody like Stephen, who as a cursory search on Apple Podcasts will testify, has done a shitload of interviews to promote this book. But in this case, I decided to make an exception. Firstly, because I listened to a couple of those episodes and thought I could do... A better job and have a decent chat with Stephen um, sorry everyone but I did think that and then secondly because uh, back in 2017 when I was planning this podcast I'd just read his book The Rise of Superman which had been recommended to me by Leslie McKenna which I did enjoy at the time and which led to me putting Stephen's name on that um, by now I can't even remember if I'm making it up or not but very lengthy list of original guests that I'd like to get on there. Uh, Incidentally, Stephen's combination of sports and pop science run through the lens of action sports is right up Leslie's Boulevard. And myself and Leslie have had a lot of chats over the years about Stephen's ideas and the whole idea of flow and all that stuff. So, yeah, I decided to do it. So the book, well, firstly, the title Gnar Country is a pun and it is a pun along the lines of Gnar Country for Old Men. And the idea behind the book, which Stephen does explain, but I'll uh, I'll go into it here a little bit, is that Stephen, who is no slouch as a resort and backcountry skier, decides to learn how to park ski in his 50s in an effort to road test the theories of flow and peak performance aging, which have been his professional Preoccupation for a couple of decades now. He's written a lot of books about this. So there's the aforementioned Rise of Superman. And there's there's quite a few more. Um, and so I read Nar Country in preparation for this chat, and it's an interesting read. I mean, we are in life hack territory, so it's full of chat about protocols, habit stacking, and the like, and there are a couple of hyperbolic flourishes in there. And anecdotes that I did initially find a little jarring, but once I got past that, um, I mean, it has a lot of relevance for firstly me being that I'm 46 and um, very much a middle aged somebody in middle age who's trying to continue to do these activities for as long and to the best of my ability as possible. Uh, It's got a lot of relevance for my listeners, which is another reason why I decided to do it. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to learn how to kick ass instead of kicking the bucket, as Stephen puts it, and keep riding for as long as possible? And also, I mean, what Stephen's really good at is distilling and describing the processes and habits we all have and we all discern about ourselves on a basic level and making them tangible and, sorry, everybody, actionable in a way that we can relate to in our daily lives. Um... So and and then I read the book and I also found a couple of bits in there that were interestingly contradictory and personally revealing about Stephen, which I was pretty keen to chat to him about. So there you go. That that was why I decided to do it. We hopped on the blower and in the end we had a really interesting chinwag. Um, I did it in the shed. I'm recording this on Friday, the 7th of April, and it's one of them, you know, spring days in the UK where the sun's out had the doors open there's a lot of background noise a lot of seagulls in the background there's a lot of people doing DIY and shit and I think Stephen definitely was a bit like wow you are quite so faire about this whole thing but you know that's how we roll over here Necessarily doing one of these on Zoom with an hour on the clock with somebody who's keen to sell their own talking points, and is definitely a little bit jaded after three months of promo. Does present an interesting challenge for me in itself, but there is a lot of fascinating stuff in there about the reasons we do what we do and how we can more mindfully harness the techniques Stephen has dedicated his work in life to, so we can have a more fulfilling life both in and out of the flow arena. So that's the premise. Um, I'll be back at the end as usual. In the meantime, here's me and Stephen. Um, do not go gentle. One for you, Dylan Thomas fans. There, enjoy.
1: All the uh, uh, my friends, uh, the band Gomez, a bunch of those guys were uh, were from Brighton.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I went to college. with. Well, I I didn't know them at college, but um, they were in my year at college. Yeah, I
1: I did a story. I I wrote the music column for GQ decades ago and uh, wrote a big story on Gomez. And uh, we became incredibly good friends. In fact, Ian, the lead guitarist, I was on a date with a woman named Lisa, I took her to see Gomez. I took her backstage. Ian <laughs> stole my girlfriend um, and never take a date to a rock concert Back, I was
0: going to say,
1: but, th- yeah. that, what was that, I fucking that, thinking, right? Just dumb. That, Ian that. stole Lisa from me and they're now, they're still married with children. It's 30 years later. Wow.
0: Um, yeah, it's funny. That's a good rock star story, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Now, <laughs> lesson learned, right? Don't bring a date <laughs> to, to backstage to a, at a rock show. Well, i think
0: you' I think you'll quite like this story, so when I was at college so this is ninety four i'm forty six so i'm forty seven in june you know when you, you know when you get to this age you can't remember how old you are i th- i'm, I'm forty six anyway so um they were in the same hall as me, and they basically the the rumor where they got their name from was uh, they all did acid. And basically went up to the, the the guy that was like running the hall of residence where they all stay and told told them that they were all in hell. And the guy who uh, did that was a guy called Jason Gomez, who was a friend of theirs, who then got kicked out of university. So when I was like when we were like freshmen, this was like this legendary story, you know, this guy that had done this. Um, and supposedly that's where they got the name Gomez from. I didn't so know they, that. That's funny. I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, so how are you anyway? Are you, well, uh, thank you. you you must be what three months into this promo trail.
1: Where are we? Uh, I'm well, yeah, but the book's only been out for about a month. So, um, uh, but yeah, I think I probably started. That's about right.
0: Yeah. How you bearing up? Uh,
1: it, so the good news is it's, we've had a great winter. All the resorts are still open. It's starting to get warm. Uh, the park has been really fun and some of the biggest lines uh, that are possible are all in play at all the resorts so um, I'm holding up just fine (laughs) yeah I
0: mean this this is your west coast right so isn't this being touted as one of the greatest winters ever basically
1: yeah no I mean like literally yesterday I turned to my ski partner and we were making it our way back to the car and uh, we came around a corner and I was like, Oh dude, I know we got nothing left, but we have to ski this cause it's never going to be open again. Like, yeah, it doesn't like this doesn't ever have snow. This is a cliff face. We're skiing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. We had, I, I was living in the French Alps in 99 and I've kind of, cause I've been seeing a lot of the posts on Instagram, which are like, um, we'll never get another winter like this. You know, this is, this is like going to be one for the books. And we had, we had one like that in 99, which everyone still talks about, like, like, I was between Chamonix and Maribel in the French Alps that year. And yeah, same thing. All the stuff that you dreamed of was, was basically open. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're obviously a, an expert at doing podcast interviews as one quick search on Apple podcasts uh, shows. So my thing is pretty casual. Um, It's, it's definitely a conversation rather than an interrogation. Um, So I just figured, um, I mean, my, my, audience i mean they're definitely squarely going to be interested in this book i think they're 35 to, to 55 generally um all massively enthusiastic skateboarders surfers snowboarders climbers terminal intermediates um so yeah i figure we start out do you want to do you want to give us the the, the the top line on on what the book actually is sure jump in you ready yeah yeah,
1: let's see. I mean, you got, you've got an hour, right? So I figured, yeah, yeah. we go straight let's, in. Let's do it. So NAR Country, the new book, is uh, it is a book about peak performance and applied peak performance. So taking the tools of peak performance and flow science and really applying them on a day-to-day basis. What does that look like? Um, coupled to uh, insights into the new field of peak performance aging. And uh, there, the news is is, is really cool. Um, and so, what in our country essentially is, since this is an action sports podcast, and everybody like this, it's a whole bunch of discoveries out of peak performance that are sort of bleeding into this new field we're calling peak performance aging. That uh, basically say that we can perform at incredibly high levels far later in life than anybody thought possible. And one of the cores of this is there's an old idea old dogs can't learn new tricks yeah and there's a whole bunch of breakthroughs in my field and flow science we can talk more about what that is in a second sure uh, in, in fields like embodied cognition uh network neuroscience which isn't really a field but it's the way the network level of the brain works systems neuroscience really is what it is <clears throat> a couple other fields that said hey wait a minute old dogs are probably better at learning new tricks than some younger dogs everything we thought is wrong and to test it I decided to see if I could teach myself how to park ski at age 53. Yeah. Um, Park skiing is, you know, everybody listening knows it's the discipline that involves, you know, doing tricks off jumps on rails, wall rides, boxes, et cetera. It's very acrobatic.
0: The bit, the bit you normally uh, happily leave behind as you get to your early 40s. (laughs) Well,
1: I mean, there's a general, and there's reasons, right? There's, so that this was why the challenge was so cool. There are, 12 different biological reasons why anybody over the age of 35 is going to have a really hard time learning how to park. So you get to 40, 45, it's impossible. And by the time you got to where I started at 53, you're just downright crazy. Right. And, or so the theory went and, you know, the book is essentially chronicles that experiment. And the theory was obviously very wrong, which is why there's a book in the end. Um, And using what the kind of the new science uh, of peak performance aging, I learned how to park ski actually faster than I've learned how to do anything, um, and it wasn't just me. We then reran the experiment with a whole bunch of other people, mostly intermediates. By the way, I had yeah. a little, I had no park skiing skill going in, but I was an expert skier. But we reran the experiment with with a bunch of people ages 29 to 68, so big swatch of folks. Um, most of them were intermediate skiers or snowboarders, and in four days on the hill using the protocol we designed that sort of mashes all these things up. And we can talk more about that. um, Got them from zero to dangerous. And that was really cool. Um, So that was, that's sort of the story in the book. If I was going to put it into a single sentence as as a way to sum it up uh, at the heart of peak performance is the state of consciousness known as flow at the heart of peak performance. Aging is the state of consciousness known as flow. Unfortunately, like a lot of things, our ability to get into flow diminishes over time also, like a lot of things that we now know, it's a use it or lose it skill. So if you, yeah. proper, if you properly train it, we can actually hold on to our ability to get into flow, even advance it and all these other skills far later in life than anybody thought possible. That's what the book's really about. How do we do that?
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that like the the can't teach old dogs new trick thing. And, you, and, and, and I guess in the book, you're referring to that as like the kind of accepted wisdom of aging, if you like. I mean, there's another phrase that I can't quite bring to mind right now, which you use in the book, which is essentially this well-worn idea that once you hit like it's all downhill once you hit a yeah, it's the long slow th- the rot theory the rot yeah. theory that's what i'm thinking about yeah. and, and
1: no and they're tied together because t- historically sort of the long slow rot theory it's the idea that all our mental skills and our physical skills decline over time there's nothing we can do to stop the slide that which, is, which
0: is the accepted wisdom right which is basically what what everybody almost, thinks almost to this day
1: it's the accepted wisdom and let's just actually start here the first thing that's shocking is this when you go into the research, that accepted wisdom—it gets its real start in the modern world in 1907. Freud makes a comment, right? That's where the idea that an old dog can't learn new tricks comes from—that's where right. the long slow rot theory. It all starts. I mean, people have been kicking it around for ages, right? But yeah. Freud makes this comment, and he's at this point the most like popular figure, you know, thought leader in the entire world, and it that, sticks.
0: That guy I mean. again.
1: Right? That guy again. And, but by like 1995, all we've done is prove Freud right in unbelievable detail. Like we now know, here's exactly how VO2 max starts to decline in our twenties. Here's what happens to strength and fast twitch muscle response and and on and on and on and all our cognitive skills. And then around 1995, holes start showing up in this theory big holes. And a lot of them were these, they started testing a lot of these ideas rigorously in the seventies in these long-term studies on health and longevity and aging and all this stuff. And they start getting their dad in the nineties. And suddenly all these old ideas are proved wrong over the next 25 years. Everything we thought declined over time. We now know it all does decline over time. That doesn't change, but all of it is a use it or lose it skill. So, what the research shows is if we train correctly um, and it's, and peak performance aging starts young, right? This is not like you might want to, you know, get busy with this if you're over 50, 60, 70, but like the research says, Hey, wait a minute, we got to start paying attention to some of this stuff in our twenties and our thirties because peak performance aging is also successful aging and healthy adult development and like how to be happy and fulfilled over the course of your life and all those questions. And and it starts young. Um, But we can hang on to them and even advance these skills far later in life than amy thought possible and so, what was
0: the what was this you mentioned so 20 25 years ago like so it, was that the first time people just began to actively study it to active, actively so test the veracity of that contention
1: a couple of things so i'll give you one example uh the ohio study of the ohio longitudinal study of aging and retirement it gets set started in 1975 we start to get data from it 20 years later cuz they they're checking in and seeing how people advance and like that's a study that looked, that was the study that one of the coolest things we, we learn about aging now is um aging is not just a physical process it's as much a mental game and a mental process as a physical process where did these ideas come from one place is this study and so one of the things they were looking at is mindset and Twenty-five years later, there's enough data that Becca Levy at Yale uh, runs a study where she looks at the impact of mindset on longevity and aging, and she finds out that the people with uh, a positive mindset towards aging—I am thrilled with what's in front of me. The second half of my life is thrilled with endless possibility. Of my best days are ahead of me. And by the way, uh, that mindset of old, right, where like the voice in your head starts saying, "Hey, you're too old for this shit." It's you're old. Yeah that starts to show up fuck, for some of us in like our late twenties. Yeah. Right? For me. It's right, yeah. <laughs> and there's biological reasons why. So the mindset of old, like when I said peak performance aging starts young, one of the reasons is this mindset of old, and there's biology underneath it, And we could talk about that if you care, but it shows up really sure. young and it has big impact on our health, our longevity, our performance, how we get into flow. Everything starts to shift with that. And if we get, a positive mindset towards aging, it results in an extra eight years of healthy longevity, which is wow. huge.
0: It's yeah.
1: amazing. That's giant. So yeah. um, w- we start figuring that those studies started in the seventies start showing up. The other thing is you have to remember that this is all the stuff I'm talking about. This is mind body connection. 1975, yeah. when they start doing these studies, nobody believes that that's a real thing, yeah. right? These are pioneering researchers and Um, it's funny because a lot of the work comes out of Harvard and Yale, these big name institutions. And and you have to ask why it's because those are the people, only people we believe because that mind body split was so far away um, that the people who knitted it together, it took a long time. It took tons and tons and tons of research for anybody who's willing to believe it is real. So that's some of it. Some of it is uh, we start getting, the first real studies on maintaining cognitive function, preventing cognitive decline. And those studies start ramping up in the nineties as well. That's when we start to discover that like Alzheimer's dementia, and cognitive decline, they're byproducts of aging, but they're not inevitable and you can actually train the brain around them and against them and in, in, in really cool ways. So all that stuff starts showing up then. Yeah. Um, gets to like now where you look at like, my buddy, Adam Ghazali, who's a neuroscientist at University of California in San Francisco, probably is sort of the cutting edge of the cognitive stuff. He's developed video games that specifically train uh, parts of the brain and deficits of aging. and. Um, they, by the way, they're the very first video games that are approved in America by the FDA, the, the Food and Drug Administration, Right on the cover of Nature, because the first video games that are prescribed, you go to a doctor, your doctor will write you a script. So wow. started out in the beginning, he was just looking at general cognitive decline, but it's now, okay, so task switching is a problem. You have trouble going from A to B and retaining your focus and everything else. Okay, there's a specific intervention for that and so forth. So it's really gotten very specialized we it's not just we know how to preserve the brain we also know how to train up the things that are going away over time using very specific interventions
0: yeah so i mean obviously as you mentioned earlier you've you've one of your specialisms is that is flow the study of flow and how we can all because and i've read a couple of your previous books about that and how you know we all I think anyone that's listened to this that's done any of these activities or anyone who's done any sport really because I I mean I I I think you you experience flow in any physical activity personally um from anecdotal evidence um and anyone that recognizes that you know your work is about how how we can harness it almost if I can paraphrase how we can cultivate it how we can so that's like the kind of been the arc of your and you know like in, in in your in your history you know you you've been a ski bum you've written you're a journalist you've started magazines you've you know, and you've made a career like out of like all your interests and then this, this, this great topic of study. So when did this topic, like when did you think, ah, actually this is a brilliant way that I can like use all of the things that I've learned to, to test these principles of peak performance aging. Was it all part of of, the the same uh, arc?
1: So the, all of this came out of work around flow. Right. So, uh, one, flow is widely known in psychology and, and, and neurobiology as the one of the major drivers of adult development. So how do we grow up? One way that we grow up is through flow states. On the other, in flow, we're pushing on our skills. We're using our skills to the utmost. Learning is enhanced. Performance is enhanced. So we're pushing on our skills to the utmost. We're getting the most out of those skills. And then we're remembering afterwards what, what we did. On the other side of flow states, we're more complex, we're more adaptable. Additionally, because our sense of self quiets down in flow, we, uh, we get more perspective, we get empathy. So on the other side of flow, we're more complex, we're more adaptable, we're wiser, we're more empathetic. This is how we grow up. This chick set me high, the godfather of flow psychology, thought this was the main driver of adult development are these no. the
0: three the three hurdles of uh, adult development that you talk about in oh the no so this is another peak performance aging starts young so this is sorry cool. to sorry to no, flip no, around
1: but so this is we're jumping all over the place um yeah i got into this topic through flow it just came like it was it was the natural evolution and a lot of flow scientists ended up here chick sent me high spent the tail end of his career working on flow and peak performance aging and things like that Got it. Um, as well. So this is right. It's just an extension. And the thing that caught my attention is, Hey, wait a minute. Flow really matters over time. Like the quality of our, of the second half of our life, usually determined by flow. And yet our ability to get into this state seems to diminish. And can we fix that? Is that a or lose its skills like the other ones, or is it something different? turns out it's like the other ones and we can train it. So that's, Exactly how I got here. What you're talking about, one of the reasons I thought old dogs can learn new tricks. This is really cool. As we enter our late 40s and our 50s, there are changes in genetics and how the brain processes information. And the result is we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence. Three new styles of thinking basically start coming online in our 50s um, or 40s and 50s. Expect new levels of creativity, including like divergent thinking, which is that far flung outside the box thinking is the hardest to train. And suddenly we gain access to new levels of it, empathy um, and wisdom and wisdom. Think of wisdom as like emotional intelligence writ large, um, coupled to a bunch of other things, but that's a quick shorthand for it. It's a yeah. clearly definable neurobiological uh, skill process, take your pick it's a real thing we know what it is we study it um really important and uh so you gain access to all this stuff one of the reasons i thought i could be able to learn how to park ski in my 50s is acts the new levels of creativity which is what park skiing really requires it's about the creative interpretation of terrain features with your body um especially the way we were we were approaching it so i was like okay i've got some advantages here but if you really want those skills, they're not automatic. So in uh, in psychology, psychologists like to talk about things called moderators. It's an if-then condition. If you do this right, you get this. If you do this right, you get this. And it turns out in adult development, there are some really big psychological hurdles we have to clear if we want to enjoy the second half of our lives, if we want to access to these superpowers, if we want access to flow over time. By age 30, it's really important to have mostly, not 100%, but mostly solve the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world. What are your values? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses, right? And, and, and how are you going to put that together in a way to, to, to live? By 40, coming out of this, you need sort of, uh, you know, econ- economics match fit. Just a tight, You need to live with passion, purpose, and flow, and a tight link between, like, what you believe and your strengths and who you are, your identity, and what you're doing with most of your time. Right, like you just you can't have that misalignment. By fifty, this is where it gets a little peculiar. You need to forgive yourself, set down shame and self consciousness, and forgive others who have done you wrong.
0: And one—that's the bit like, I found really fascinating. And carry on there because I want—I really I need, I want to come back to give that you a bit,
1: bit of the science of it. Is, so everything we're talking about here that's coming on comes out of our ability to see things from multiple perspectives. Right, that's really what opens up, and if you're still. Caring grudges, pissed off. You're not seeing things from other people's perspectives, right? So it blocks all of this. Now to get all these superpowers after self-forgiveness, if you can get through that hurdle. What matters next is creativity. So creative thinking, whether it's, you know, physical creativity, I'm going skiing in the train park and I'm do creative things, or, you know, I'm writing, doesn't matter. Cooking, coding, doesn't really matter but creative thinking unlocks these skills. So you need a lot of that in your fifties. And then beyond, once you get this stuff, if you want to hang on to it in your late fifties, sixties and seventies, you have to constantly be training up your risk tolerance because risk aversion increases over time. And if it does, the fear it introduces into the equation ends up blocking, learning, blocking wisdom, blocking empathy, blocking creativity. So you got to counteract that. And the other thing you have to do is train up, physical train against physical fragility, because what good is a supercharged brain if your body's starting to fall apart and physical fragility requires um, training five categories of fitness, um, strength, stamina, flexibility, agility, and balance. They all decline over time. We have to train all five. There's very specific, like the World Health Organization knows how much time you're supposed to spend each week training all those things or yeah. bonus for everybody listening. Everything I just described is is dynamic motion. If you're involved in a dynamic activity, skiing, surfing, snowboarding, rock climbing, you're using all five of those things at once. turns out action sports are phenomenal, sort of longevity tools, anti-aging medicines and all that stuff. This is one of the reasons why. And here's a bonus. When we have to sort of coordinate strength and balance and agility, like all at once, stamina, in sports like skiing or snowboarding, these kinds of things, that dynamic motion, besides training up all five categories of the body that you need to preserve, it actually promotes angiogenesis and neurogenesis, so big words, but angiogenesis is the birth of new vasculature in the brain, new blood vessels um, that oxygenate the brain, so it's energy, and neurogenesis is new neurons. So you want to stave off Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, dementia, you need neurogenesis. And it turns out dynamic motion not only preserves our physical function, it amplifies brain function. And you can see this, so they chart, the Mayo Clinic did this, which activities, physical activities give you the most longevity in health. And the list starts with like, I joined a health club and you get yeah. about a year, 1.1, a year and a month. So 13 months. Uh, swimming is like 3.1 years or running is 3.1 years swimming is 3.6 years then you get into more dynamic activities soccer is like six years badminton is actually better than soccer it's like seven tennis is better than badminton it's nine and then you get into the action sports which are like if you can play safely 10 11 you get you add much more because they do all this function
0: all this for you so action sports is the perfect kind of nexus then for all these like circumstances that you're talking about to achieve this peak performance aging. So we'll get to that in a minute because obviously that's kind of what the book's about. And what I will say, like the book is great and that thing that, you know, you just spent five minutes describing that really quickly, but obviously that is a huge part of the book. Like all like the, this, this foundational understanding of these principles. So for anyone listening to dig into more of that, because it is fascinating. And I know most people listening will find this fascinating. Like that, that that's a huge part of the book. But one thing I did want to ask you about is this, um, when it is is the risks slash fear well i think i think you it's risk you you characterize it as like risk aversion being important um and i think you just said because it's it it, it has a cognitive function and it has and it, it can impair creativity am i paraphrasing correctly okay, there so, yeah uh,
1: let me give you a little bit more of the science
0: when please do because i was really fascinated when
1: we're when we're afraid the brain produces cortisol stress hormone and yeah. norepinephrine norepinephrine is essentially low doses is curiosity high doses is anxiety yeah um, and the more norepinephrine in your system so a little norepinephrine primes the brain for learning too much i'm anxious it actually blocks learning because the brain is too busy solving the problem in front of you to bother with all that right yeah So learning gets blocked the more norepinephrine in your system the part of your brain that says, am I going to find like a tight link between ideas like, oh, here's this thing and here's the standard response? Or am I going to take the time and find something unusual, a cool connection outside the box thinking, divergent thinking? That's the anterior cingulate cortex does that. And the more norepinephrine in your system, the more conservative it gets. Because if you're in a dangerous situation, right? A lot of fear, you don't want creative solutions. Give me the thing that works 100% of the time, right? Like tried, true, conservative, state. Give me that. I don't yeah. have the eyeball, right? Um, right? We also know that the more norepinephrine in your system, the more selfish you become. So, right, the more scared you are, protect the organism, protect the organism, the less you're thinking about other people, right? So that blocks empathy and wisdom. And to boot on top of all of this, uh, norepinephrine, too much norepinephrine blocks flow. Right. So, flow has this primary trigger. One of his main triggers is the challenge skill sweet spot. I talked about it earlier. We flow follows focus, right? That's how, when the stoat shows up. It's because all our attention is on the here and now. We pay the most attention to what we're doing the task when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch but not snap. So, um, too much norepinephrine, too much anxiety, you're being pushed out of that sweet spot. You're, so it's blocking flow. And to boot, the older you get, the more you have that mindset of old, and the more you have, you face challenges in your life that lead to stress, those two combinations over time. And remember I said our access to flow shrinks over time? Yeah, One of the things that happens is the challenge skill sweet spot shrinks because of allostatic load allostatic load is the impact of stress over time on our physiology and our psychology and that it shrinks down the challenge skills sweet spots. So uh, this changes how you want to approach activities later in life. But it also speaks right here that like once the sweet spot starts to shrink down, any anxiety in the system is going to start blocking flow. So on top of all the other penalties, you're going to block the state of peak performance that you really need to achieve your goals later in life. So yeah. th- there's a huge penalty here for not training up risk aversion. We're not and, training down risk aversion.
0: And the, and this obviously applies to non-physical scenarios as well, right? Well, so I, the, no, no, Yeah. And, and
1: let me, let, so physical risk is great, right? But I mean, I can't tell you, I, I would say at least, well, a lot of the people I know in this world are, are, Professional action sport athletes, right? And the most interesting thing for me is always watching them transition out of action sports into whatever they're going to do next. Yeah, Just see people who you're like, you're the bravest motherfucker in the history of the universe, and you can't walk into a meeting and yeah. open mouth
0: and talk. Right, that's what I'm like, sort of getting at because yeah, I think exactly. I think one of the things I found. I'm just going to quickly give you a little anecdote, personally, to 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 tell you how I was. So I I recognise a lot in what you said. So I used to run a snowboarding magazine, and I also spent most of my twenties um, chasing very very good athletes around the mountain, and I really recognised that. Um, I mean, this is probably pretty niche between, <laughs> but that that thing you talked about, like how that impacted your self esteem. Like, I really recognize that. And, and, um, and oh
1: my God, you're actually talking about the experience I had where, like, yeah, chasing yeah, yeah, around. yeah that, the I'm literally, humbling, t- I'm, I'm, you, I'm think literally... You're the, you think you're a freaking badass athlete. And you get out to the mountain with actual professional athletes. And yeah, I'm talking, I'm
0: talking about, how about that. Bad like,
1: you really are. Oh yeah. my God, it's crippling self consciousness.
0: Exactly. And I, and really- I, so, so I, I had a really similar experience 10 years traveling with action sports athletes who are a million times better than me and 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 I guess what was interesting for me is like when I got to like my thirties and 40s, I actually made quite a lot of peace with that, and I was actually a bit like, Do you know what like i don't I'm actually quite i don't really care about that anymore, which is quite a liberating thing um and I just found it really interesting that it seems to it seems to have been an itch that you've really had to scratch like you know like the, that's like the,
1: so it but it got built out of me. As a punk rock kid not getting along with with the jocks, right? The athletes. And this and this
0: is what I found so fascinating about this whole part of your story. Because obviously, like there's a there's a, it's a big thread of the book. You know, you talk about it quite a lot through the book. You talk about like circle of shame, you talk about being a kid at school, you talk about Alex, how you got into punk. You know, there's I, this real thread. So can you talk to me about that? Because yeah, you obviously know what know. I'm talking about.
1: So one you know, it's one thing to talk about. Oh, in your fifties, you gotta set down, shame and self consciousness, and forgive others, right? Like, but that's you know, good, and that, big, that, that's, that's, that's what big, I'm getting at. That's yeah. a big deal, right? Like, that's not like what I gotta do. What are yeah. you kidding me? Like, are, like, and and when I and so it's interesting because the standard tool for forgiveness uh, in psychology uh, and you know peak performance is love and kindness meditation, compassion, yeah. meditation, right, and it's a phenomenal tool. And it, it, it's got, I mean, I can performance benefits and anti-aging benefits and I go on and on and on. But there's some stuff that it was like, I was just so pissed at some folks from my like early childhood. Like they, you know, they had done some damage and I just like, I could do love and kindness meditation all day and this shit. I'm not putting it down. And some of that, like that can gets compounded after you ski with professional athletes for 10 years. And it's so humbling. And, you know, we used to joke around, I helped start freeze magazine, which was the first sort of extreme ski magazine. Every journalist on staff there got PTSD. (laughs) <laughs> like every one of us we've got ptsd from going on assignment and chasing professional athletes around mountain like again i, I empathize you, get that. you totally understand <laughs> that. other people hear that they're like what and i'm like oh no you have no like you don't understand it's, still it's,
0: it's still it's still a thing like it's still totally a thing like it's a, because it's a behavioral loop isn't it that you get yourself in basically i um and i
1: had to figure out how to put it down yeah like if i it's going to block my ability to get into flow over time among other things, right? One of the things that, so the other component in the challenge skills, sweet spot. Okay. How, what do we mean by challenge? What do we mean by skills? This is a question that scientists have been poking at for a while. One of the big answers is confidence. Confidence is an enormous, enormous part of where you are in the challenge skills, sweet spot. And, if that diminishes over time, carrying this weight into my, into my fifties, not only is it going to block adult development and my ability to be happy and fulfilled and everything else I could have in my life, it's going to start blocking flow even more because everything's shrinking. And so it was, in my opinion, I was like, okay, this is crisis time. Like, so I, what I did, that was another thing I did with my country is I'm a big fan of um, missions creating a mission, right? When it's it's sort of, I covered in my book, The Art of Impossible, a lot of the science of goal setting. And there's a very precise science for how we set goals as biological organisms. But in our country, I, I add the last part to it, which is set up all your goals and your different levels of goals and all that stuff, but tie them all together in a mission, yeah. which is a way to like go out and actually, you know, do that. And, you know, there's being on a mission does something really weird to the brain. Like anybody who's ever been involved in like, you know, either big... Act, you know, action sport. I'm going to go climb Everest or that sort of thing, or anybody who's been involved in a startup, right? Like where you have your, that kind of mission, you know, that like you function differently, you're much more motivated, you're much more willing to take chances. You're much more willing to sort of do all this stuff. And so I created a mission for myself, learn how to park ski. That was a, it's, this is an athletic mission. Like I'd never done anything like that in my life because challenging myself like that would just expose all these weaknesses. So I specifically realized that the only way I could be successful is if I turned myself into one of those goddamn jocks <laughs> where I All through my childhood, right? Like I forced myself to go walk a mile in their moccasins to use the cliche. Yeah. Um, and it was a very effective way because what I am clear, so clear on now that, you know, uh was what, like how much those people who tortured me through my childhood brought to my life. I don't get to go on this mission without them. So yeah. like, I loved it. Like I loved every moment of it. And it was, it was an amazing thing to get to do. And so it totally brought it full circle and, and really paid that off. And I'm glad you, uh I just have to say this. I'm, I appreciate the fact that, that spoke to you in the book it, i it went back and forth like that much it's you know like do i tell people this do i not tell people this do i want to do this do i want? and i and i did it because i was like you know i think people and especially the people i know coming out of action sports are going to appreciate this because it,
0: it's super honest and also what i found really fascinating about it was it's the perfect kind of you know obviously you've used this there's two layers, this isn't it? There? There's like, I'm going to road test the, I'm going to use the, 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 the feet of try to learn to park ski to road test these ideas. I'm exploring and understanding. But equally, you've got unfinished personal business, <laughs> which, which really comes across. Um, and you kind of, you kind of, cause there's one point where you, I think you, you find yourself in the park or you find yourself in a the gully. There's something, there's people around though. You know, one of the comments that you make quite a few times is the book is like, I prefer to ski alone like and i prefer not to do things in front of a a, a crowd but you but you're in a situation where you have to and i'm guessing that previously you might have shied away from that and you actually perform and you deliver and you you know you're like it's a fuck you do you know what i mean like to those those people in my youth that so you've clearly you know like the two layers i found really fascinating but you you hinted at earlier if you don't mind the question that that, that that there is a seeming contradiction with that with the 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 the, the fifth de- the sixth decade hurdle of forgiving people that have wronged you the 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 being kind to yourself the self-compassion thing that you talk about quite a lot in the book i mean i guess that's the question is did did, did, did there seem to be a, like a uh you know an, a, some a, a bit of an opposition there with 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 that stated goal of self-compassion forgiving people and also this mission to prove these people wrong
1: well okay so two things i'm a big believer in what we talk about at the flow research collective when we train people stacking motivations yeah right uh athletes know this you 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 stack fuel sources right so you never show up at the hill if you or at whatever you're doing if you can avoid it without you know you've eaten carbs you've eaten proteins you've eaten uh fats you're hydrated you've gotten a good night's sleep you've Recover, blah, blah, blah. You're stacking fuel sources, as many available fuel sources as you possibly can. You got snacks in your pocket, right? Same, want to do the same thing with motivation, right? And there are five big intrinsic motivators that I talk about a lot. uh, Yeah, entry autonomy, excuse me, um, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery. And they're designed to work together, but there are additional motivators small ass spite what you know coaches for years have talked about as bulletin board material somebody telling you you can't that sort of stuff that's what i was using this as right it Right. Was additional motivation um and there was a clock on it too right like i knew that like oh wow I'm, I'm i'm in my 50s this really applies to me they're talking specifically to me and you know if i would have known this was coming in a sense i probably would have started a lot earlier but, yep. you know, didn't and like got the information was like, oh, shit, got to do this now. Um, so I like the added thrust. The fact that like it was a sort of a, a, a fuck you to them that like that spite is a motivator because in the end, <laughs> right, like, what happened is I end up in group flow, right? With like, you know, the, the senior talking about there were 30 professional snowboarders dropping into a, a slope style field basically at once and I beat them into the thing and was like chased by them. We had a blast um, all at once. And there was this great group flow everybody's feeding off each other's session. And, um, you know, I had to become, I had to basically become them, but I didn't like one, I didn't really see that coming. Right. Like that happened. Like this was, a, I didn't know where it was going. You have to yeah. also remember that like hindsight is great on this one. When I yeah. started the book, I didn't think I was going to be able to learn how to park ski. I didn't think I was going to be able to learn how to forgive those people who had done me wrong. I didn't like this was like I was out of my mind, uh, according to most people, to like embark on this adventure. And I felt a little bit that that way, too. So um, some of it was, you know, how the story ended up getting told.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I just thought it was really, really fascinating, that part of it. Um, so we'll I talk also... About-
1: the- the other thing that you got to remember is like the other thing the book was that's, that's useful for is the th- one of the things that's hardest. We train people, at the flow Research Collective in like 130 countries all over the world. We train everybody you could possibly imagine from individuals to professional athletes, to companies and whatever. And the hardest thing in training all these folks is explaining what applied peak performance looks like, right? So flow states, people... Always want more flow. Flow states have triggers. We talked about the challenge skills balance. There's 26 in all. If you know how they work um, and when to use them, you're you're dangerous. Flow is also a four-stage cycle. It's a process. So if you know where you are in the cycle, you have a map of the territory. Those are the two things we teach people. But the question they have is like, how do I apply this in a real world situation? Like and on a day-to-day basis. And that's what you get in the book. You get, hey, I showed up at the mountain. I was facing a health challenge, right? I had re-aggravated an injury. I was tired. Um, I had gotten in a, in, in a fight with my wife or, you know, was that I had some emotional stuff going on and yet I still, I had a job to do and I needed to get into flow. And what did I do? Or I showed up at the Hill feeling self-conscious for this reason and anxiety for this reason. And I had a job to do and I need to get into flow. And What's the recipe in that circumstance? And that, um, is the other thing I think the self-consciousness and, and some of the, the psychological stuff is useful for because what the book is trying to do and that stuff is like, hey, these are situations we all face every day. Like I was facing them on the mountain, but we face them at work, we face them in our personal life. And oftentimes flow is the solution we're seeking. How do you get from point A to point B? That's what I was trying to cover in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, stru- I mean it's kind of the question I was going to ask. Like structurally, the book is set out. First half is obviously you know exploring your adventures through park skiing and how you applied all these principles but then the second half of the book is is more like well here's how here's the protocol as you described it uh, that i used to do this and how this can be applied to to individuals and to different to different um people's lives and i guess that's why i focused on the risk element because just to slightly come back to that because obviously it just doesn't you know, reading it, I was a bit like, "Well, it doesn't need that. Doesn't that can just be a metaphor? It doesn't need to be literally like you need to put yourself in physical danger." As you mentioned, it could be something like, "Oh no, emo- when, so emotional like, risk." Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's do the science here because the science is what's useful. Uh,
1: so, flow follows focus. It only shows up when a lot of attention is in the here and now. I said the flow triggers drive attention into the now. That's what they all do. They drive focus. They do it a bunch of different ways. One of the main things a lot of the triggers do is they do their work by pushing dopamine into our system. Dopamine is a performance-enhancing chemical that amplifies fast-twitch muscle response, pattern recognition. Uh, It uh, boosts... um, creativity learning rates go up and it's also focus and attention and excitement right we feel it as like when dopamine's is our system we are paying attention to the thing that's in front of us because it's delicious and we love it and it's great now what where do we get dopamine there's a lot of different sources and these are all flow triggers uh curiosity produces dopamine passion produces dopamine when we're uh, striving towards our goals, we get a little dub mean. When we take a risk, we get dub Physical risk, emotional risk, creative risk, social risk, pattern recognition. When we link ideas together in a novel way, um, we get dub This could be pattern recognition on the mountain. I see a, a train feature and I go, oh, that looks perfect for a flat spin when, 180 or, you know, whatever I want to throw. That's not even a trek or.
0: You know, <laughs> I know what you mean. I,
1: couldn't I know throw. what <laughs> you mean. <laughs> I don't actually know what I was thinking on that one. Um, you'd have to stop your rotation. It'd be weird. Anyway.
0: Yeah. It could but it could be it could be you're writing a a, a huge school paper with lots of complex um, concepts that are difficult for you that you've managed to marshal into coherent. Exactly. Form. It could be that, you know, it that, could be yeah,
1: exactly. And so all of these things produce dopamine, right? That's what we're trying to get at. And one of the things so I tell people risk is a stupid flow trigger. Um, risk is what you really want to take once you're in flow to extend the state, that's when you use flow as risk as a thing, because you're performing at your best. You've got your best chance of success. So you really on the front end to get into flow, you you're looking for slightly different triggers. So one of the things that we did in the terrain park, for example, is we taught people to creatively interpret terrain features. So we taught them foundational movements. Park skiing is essentially slashing, grinding uh, a 180, a 360 skiing, or riding backwards, uh, jumping and uh, a shifty. Those are the basic core movements. So uh, we taught people two new movements a day and just how to move your body in a new way and take an established motor pattern, something you can do hundred percent of the time with no fear, no conscious interference and build on that. And we did this because we knew everybody knew how to hockey stop. They were all intermediates. <laughs> so if you raise the angle of a hockey stop, as you know, depending on where you put your hips, that's a a grind or a slash, right? And so if I've got you doing a hockey stop across a snow berm that's like two inches high, you're now grinding. We knew everybody could do that. So the goal was teach them how to creatively interpret the terrain features. That's creativity. You're looking at a snowbank and going, oh, wow, I can grind that pattern recognition. You get a bunch of those little creative decisions in a row. You've actually equaled the amount of dopamine you would get from a big, Physical risk so you can ease into flow that way or for example um to go back to like you know a business setting right you let's say you're you're, you're going in to give a, a presentation that's a big risk right? right you can use risk as a flow trigger and maybe it'll work for you but if you're a little too scared you're a little yeah. out of challenge skills sweet spot you can get enough sleep the night before that's maybe not the best idea. So what you would rather do is, one, do something that regulates your nervous system on the front and a breathing exercise, a gratitude practice, something to lower those norepinephrine levels. And then before you go in, and we do this all the time, you'll get with your friends and you'll start joking around and teasing and making everybody laugh. Why are you doing that? Well, because when we put a joke together and we laugh, that's pattern recognition, that's dopamine, that feel- That good feeling we get. So when you're on the chairlift, about to ski a snowboard a gnarly line, and you're joking with your friends, what are you doing? You're trying to put patterns together to create little bits of dopamine, so you're closer to flow. So when you get into that line, it's not such a big leap. We do this anyways. Yeah, but doing it a little more consciously. I'll give you an example for me as a writer. So I'm very prolific and people like to point out like that I've written 14 books and how did you do that and blah, blah, blah. And one of the reasons is I have a high flow protocol with my writing. I start every writing session. Facing a blank page is just as difficult for me as it is for anybody, right? But I start every writing session by editing what I wrote the day before. Editing is pattern recognition. Yeah. I make i micro tuning this on my micro- So if I edit what I wrote the day before, before I face the blank page, I've got a much better chance of luring myself into flow before I have to take the big risk of the blank page. Kind do, you know,
0: of do you know the Hemingway, sorry to interrupt you, but do you know the Hemingway anecdote about that apparently he used to leave, leave his last page till the next day. So he, knew yeah, he-
1: so I, I wrote about that in art of impossible. Well, I actually heard about it. Hemingway did it. I learned it from, in an interview from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Right, also did it. Um, but that's the same thing, right? That's the flow. Just, well, that so what that is about is uh, one easy access to pattern recognition because you're going to recognize yesterday's pattern, two motivation, right? If you fit, he, so you can do this as an athlete. I did this, I'll give you an example. I did this yesterday. Uh, I was in the train park, I was skiing, I had like with my partner, I had like five or six really great laps in a row, and I was super pumped up. And my partner had to split. He had to go back to work. And he was. And I was like, I'm going to get off the hill now. And he's like, really? And I was like, I've only got about another hour left in me physically, but I'm going to quit now because I'm really fired up because I just, you know, hit a whole bunch of stuff in a row that was, you know, uh, really cool. And it's going to motivate me to come back tomorrow because now yeah. I'm excited, right? Um, rather than, you know, burning myself out and ending with like a crushing defeat or falling down and hurting myself. And that's my last memory. Um, yeah and uh Josh Waitzkin, uh, who wrote the art of learning takes this one step farther he will argue that like for skiers when you're coming off or a snowboard's coming off the run for these exact same reasons the most important turns are the last three turns you make before you get to the lift because the lift is going to be that break and you're on con-
0: you're doing the same
1: they got a smaller scale so i think that's interesting yeah i tried flying with that a little bit
0: yeah, so I mean, like as you mentioned, I mean a lot of what you discuss in the book and a lot of your work, it is, it is things that we can instinctively recognise as behavioural patterns. But but what's really fascinating about your work is, is how you can apply these practical things to to, to improve your life, basically. Because I mean, I just list, was listening to you then, because I'm a writer and I'm you know I'm a journalist, I, and I still have problems sometimes if I've got a particularly, I've actually got a particularly challenging piece of work I need to do right now, and I have been putting it off. <laughs> you know and 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 it is but then i know that when i do it and it will be challenging and i've never really thought about this until our conversation until reading reading the book but you know what what has helped me understand is what's actually going on there and then also the value that you get from from when you push yourself through it you do it it's hard and then you get the sense of satisfaction and then you know all those i mean that's that's this process in microcosm isn't it the the other thing i found quite interesting was that glenn Plake anecdote about you and him on mount hood i think it is when because you know i think you you're you skiing yeah,
1: i mean this was the same lesson don't use risk as a flow trigger yeah it was a uh, glenn he, and i were It was the first time anybody ever taught me um a flow states had triggers and there was a way like he was a very yeah, fun. We were in really fast really fast yeah. that. we were do you want should I tell the story?
0: Yeah, please do. I mean, I, everyone loves a bit we of. Were in the
1: hood, and we were hiking and skiing some of the the gnarlier chutes up top. It was really late season. I want to say it was like August or September, October. There wasn't a whole lot of snow left, and um, we were about to ski a pretty steep chute and everything was melted out. So, like, there were cliffs on all sides, and it was I don't know, high forties, low fifties, um, and with cliffs everywhere, and Glenn backs up like 50 yards and skates in and there's a mogul sort of right in front of the chute, pops off the mogul into the air and executes an airplane turn, turns on degrees, drops into the chute and skis it. And I ski after him. And I'm like, afterwards, I just was like, dude, what the f- are you doing? Like, why would you do like, you know, why would you do something dumb and dangerous before we we're about to do something dumb and dangerous, like what is going on? And, you know, I'm paraphrasing. It's like 35 years later, but Glenn said something like, dude, you don't get it. Something about being weightless in the middle of the airplane turn that drops me into the zone. And so by the time I've landed in the chute, I'm already in the zone and I'm dialed in and can ski the shoot. And what Glenn was talking about, we now know is. So earlier you said, I think all physical activity produces flow. One of the reasons is just this and an airplane turn really amplifies it. When we are involved in multi-sensory experiences, experiences that demand sight, sound, proprioception, all that, everything we got, there's no room for anything else. It drives attention no. to the present moment, right? So an airplane turn first, it's got novelty. That's another flow trigger because it's this novel, sensational weightlessness. Um, uh, then it's got these embodied sensations where you're using all of your senses at once. Um, there's a little risk involved, but it's a tiny risk, especially if you're a skier like Plake, yeah. right? it's a tiny, tiny, tiny risk. And so he's, you, he's stacking a bunch of flow triggers really quickly right at the front end of, of this gnarly thing. And, um, you know, it's great. It's great advice. If you, you know, as most people know, if you can like, jump into the hard thing that you're trying to ski or snowboard and actually stick the landing. Yeah you're ha- if you can control the speed, you're gonna have a much better experience. Yeah. For this
0: reason. So I mean I got I have I've wanted to ask you this question since I've read your first book actually. I think we've got about 10 left for time, so I've got an eye on the clock. Um I mean everyone can recognize the moments that we're talking about. Um personally, you know, I you know that's listening to this, you know, I play a lot of soccer as you'd call it, I play a lot of football and one of the things that always like every now and again maybe once every like 10 games i'll do something which i'm like where the fuck did that come from like it like and it and it will almost be like an out of body experience um you know i'll score like a good goal or i'll have a good touch like you know i'm a fucking hopeless footballer but like yeah. and it's the same i surfed i was in the maldives a couple of years ago and i had one session where i was i almost felt like i was I mean, everyone was going like, "Fucking out! What? What do you have for breakfast?" kind of thing. And then, and and we all recognize those moments. And obviously, your your work is about teaching people how to mindfully cultivate those moments, and 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 ultimately to have a more fulfilled life. To, to, to summarize, but the question I've got for you is: Is the difference between amateurs like us and professionals the ability to mindfully call upon that flow space? To achieve Yeah, so yeah it's, it's it's interesting. I,
1: I can actually um I can you know, I'm scared. You know I'm yeah, now, right? I can answer this very specifically. Um so uh there are obviously a bunch of differences.
0: Yeah. Are, right? I, 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 not, of course, of it's, course. It's, yeah.
1: Um, but but you're not wrong. So Red Bull did this work with a Dr. Leslie Shearland on flow and this is one of the things that they discovered is that so uh, I got to give you a little neurobiology. When we're in flow, brainwaves shift. So right now, we're, uh, our brains are producing beta waves. It's a fast-moving wave. It means awake, alert. Slightly slower, the brain in daydreaming mode, that's an alpha wave. This is the brainwave that's usually associated with creativity. Below that, even slower still, is a theta wave. This is where we are usually within REM sleep. So flow actually takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta. It's it's down there. Um, so every time you make a decision, right, your brain goes through a, a decision cycle and it, it requires a bunch of different brain waves. So even if you're in flow, you're down at this alpha theta cycle um, and you have to make a decision, right? I'm in flow and I'm going to, am I going right or left on the trail? Right. Yeah. kind of thing your brain has to run the traps and go and it's going to go up into high beta or, or into beta at, at a certain point point. one of the main differences between uh pros and amateurs is amateurs get stuck up there right you start running the traps of oh what are the consequences of right and left and you're kicked out of flow um and into fear or anxiety and yeah. professionals get up there and they're like, they run all that and then they can drop back down to that alpha theta borderline. So it's this sort of fluidity. Yeah. The other thing is this now the flow research collective, uh, as I said, we train a lot of people. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is, uh, Our training is about eight weeks long. It's intense. You go through it with a PhD psychologist or a a neuroscientist as a coach. There's a lot of work. It's not light. But on the back end, we measure everything pre and post. And so we see on average, and we're training tens of thousands of people every month, a 70 to 80% increase in flow. The point here is really trainable. Very, very trainable. Most peak performers, most top performers, as you pointed out earlier, if, if you've learned anything and gotten good at anything, you've used flow to do it. So you already are playing these games. You're just yeah. not aware of that, right? What happens with better performers is they get not just more aware that they're playing the games, they start to figure out, Oh, these are the flow triggers that work best for me in this situation. That even if you don't know what the name is, these behaviors, right. What you're still doing because flow is how the we humans do peak performance. It's anytime we're performing at our best, it's likely to, to be present. So peak performers, anybody who's good at what they do, right. Um, is naturally going to move in this direction because it's just the biology. This is how we're hardwired to do it. And those people who become a little more aware of their biology get a little better at their emotional regulation. Oftentimes, you know, it's interesting. You see, it's not really the difference between who triumphs in their early twenties, but like career longevity. How do you go from like, I had a kick-ass season, you know, and was in the X games to, oh no, I'm, a legend. I've actually reshaped the sport, and one of the things that you see often is, is people get hurt um, in their mid twenties, mid to late twenties, and uh, coming back from that injury, they realize, oh, physically, I'm not what I was. I have to get yeah. really good at the mental game, and so you see it like in everybody's career. Danny Way was this way. Shane McConkey was this way. A bunch of these people who became legends. You see, they have to make Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. They have to make this shift from, the, oh, I can get by on physical stuff alone to, oh, no, there's a mental game here. What's that? That's really, these are a lot of the differences. A lot of this stuff is very trainable, right? Um, and I think oftentimes with what you're seeing with professional athletes is they just figured out how to train themselves Yeah. Um, along the way,
0: right? Yeah. Um, F- fascinating
1: fascinating it's about i mean one of the things that i've learned after forty years of skiing and chasing pros around is like there was a point when i started keeping up with pros right uh not if we're in alaska not if we're <laughs> deep in the backcountry, but in the resorts yeah most deep. of the times right we're getting to share this at the same time i'm skiing at the same speeds. blah 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 right it took that was a that was like 20 years worth of, of chasing pros around but what you start to see, what I've started to see, I'm sure you got some of this is, oh, wow, I see the progression path that gets me to pro. I don't like, I may not want to walk it. It may not be interesting to me, um, but you can, it, what was invisible suddenly starts to become visible and you're like, oh, I see how this happens now. I may not want to do it, but it's no longer this like magic trick that is like this level of talent, you start to see it and you start to realize the same thing everybody realizes, which is just, it's a progression, there are steps. And, you know, what they managed to do is get farther faster. So what knowledge of flow and flow science does is allows you to get farther faster in the same way that they did. Right? Yeah, you're leveraging the same tools. This is by the way, you know, essentially how I taught myself how to park ski in a single season, right? Um, at age 53, it was the same same there was no other way i was going to do it it's the same thing
0: yeah have you got time for one more Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting thank you um well it's actually about your your drive um because you 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 know you mentioned earlier a bit of a throwaway comment 14 books the schedule as well in the book up at three writing for four hours walking the dog like it's it's formidable even for even for very motivated people. Um, so, so,
1: well, you have, okay. So you have, to, that was the schedule during the mission. Sure. Sure.
0: But clearly you're no slouch when it comes to drive.
1: No. And I, and that schedule <laughs> isn't much different than what I normally do. It just was yeah. a little earlier.
0: So is this related to the fuck you to the jocks? If I, not to, not to, not to bring Freud back into the conversation, but, um, I, I did wonder where it came from. It comes from a lot of different
1: places. Um, I have always, I've been, I've always been pretty motivated. Like I'm very curious. I've always been pretty passionate. Like, you know, all those things haven't been an issue, but I've always been very good at stacking motivation, right? Grid is a last resort for me. Like it's not, you know, I don't turn to grit until after I've explored every other possible motivator I I, I, I can use. So I've I've always done a lot of that. Um, and some of it is, and I talk about this very early in the book, and we definitely train people in this um, when we do our peak performance aging tra- training, I learned, so I was very sick. I had Lyme disease when I was 30, spent three years in bed. Uh, and on the other side of Lyme disease, it was very, everybody goes through a long illness. This happens. You're just like, oh my God, you can, you, you can lose. It can go away in a second. Don't waste any time. Right. And And so I, when you're recovering from Lyme disease one, so the early rising was always easy for me Two, When I started my career as a journalist, I lived on the West coast, but everybody I worked for was on the East coast and I wanted to write books. So I knew they were going to start phoning me as soon as they got to the office with assignments. And I knew I needed to work on my shit before because I was so young and so poor and so hungry. I was going to say yes to anything. So like I started pushing my system back after Lyme disease. I realized that like all I really wanted to do was surf and write. Like those were like that. I didn't want to like nothing else. Those were my number one and number two priorities depending on the day. And I was like, I I didn't have energy for a social life. Like I only had energy for like those two things. And it was either like, I was going to go on dates and have a social life. And I, you know, I was still single at the time. Um, I was going to have friends or I was going to right, And I just, so I just started moving stuff out of my life. That wasn't my, my top pleasures. And, you know, I, I use a lot of filters like that. So I don't tend to waste time on a lot of lesser pleasures. A lot of people waste a lot of time on a lot of, you know, lesser passions, lesser, you know, I just don't do that, um, at all. And it's, and it improves the quality of your life tremendously because it means that everything you're doing is stuff you're deeply passionate about, um, which improves motivation as well. So like I do a lot of stuff along those lines for motivation. It, I always say to people, and this is the other thing about writing. And I think you'll kind of agree with me, anybody who's any creative activity, early on in your career, you sort of have to learn how to turn pain into creativity. You turn pain into words, you turn pain into sculpture or whatever. Later you get better at all the other emotions and you learn to turn those into art as well. But, um, part of it is that your, your craft becomes your salvation. It's where you run when you need someplace to run. And, uh, Knowing that it's true, you know what I mean. Like that's also part of it. Is like when shit's going wrong in my life, I run towards skiing. I run towards writing. Those are the things I run towards. Um, So I think it's a combination of of that and just like you know, a a little bit of self awareness along the way um, in terms of how I filter my days. It's it looks it really looks gritty on the outside, and I know that doesn't
0: feel that gritty on the inside. Really. I kind of thought, I, th- I kind of thought that might be something along the lines of how you'd answer. Yeah. I
1: say that. I mean, I say that in the book, it doesn't matter. Everybody has this comment there. They still see all the grit and I'm like, it's not grit. If yeah. that was grit, I couldn't do it.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Really, I couldn't, I'm not that gritty. I'm not that freaking tough. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm really not. If that was grit, I would get my ass kicked. It, it's leveraging all the other motivators and flow. Because flow underpins happiness and well being and life satisfaction and joy. And it's the reboot. So if you can stack your motivators and, and regular access to flow, that's that, motiv- that 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 that's just forward progress. That's momentum, that's progression. Um, you're
0: not really leaning on grit too much. Yeah, which is the older I get, what I'm increasingly convinced, as in forward movement is the point of life, really. Of any of any type, really. Just some kind of progress. Um, but Stephen, thank you so much. That was great. So there you go. That was me and Stephen Kotler chatting Gnar country and flow and peak performance aging. And I hope you enjoyed it. I, I really did enjoy it. And if I sound surprised, it's because, as you might have gathered, I do have a bit of an instinctive aversion to all things life hack and actionable. Um, I I just feel like there's an element of snake oil to the whole thing that is a bit hard to ignore and I also get suspicious when pop cultural worldviews and the attendant language and lingo generally gets adopted unthinkingly en masse and is suddenly everywhere. Um, I'm still trying to work out why I have this aversion to it to be honest. I think I've sort of talked about this a little bit. I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that it just replaces actual thought. It becomes almost like a lifestyle statement you know when people are into this stuff Um, I mean I find the whole Wim Hof thing like completely fascinating for example and the way that the ideas that have had credence for a while suddenly get repackaged and sold and suddenly everyone's banging on about it because it's been repackaged in a different way Um, so I, I do have a bit of a natural suspicion about this stuff but in this case Stephen is obviously somebody who's dedicated his entire life to the pursuit of his ideas and hence has the experience and scientific references to back it up. And also, let's be honest, I am massively in the minority because most people lap this shit up um, as the many, many podcasts out there about this testify. So I dipped a toe in and that was the conversation that we had. And and another thing I did enjoy about this whole process of chatting to Stephen and reading his book and doing the research and all that. Is as I mentioned during the conversation, the explorations in the book and our conversation itself did make me reevaluate the way I've handled certain situations in my own life and continue to do so. For example, that crack I made about putting off work or being daunted by work is true. I definitely do that. And I definitely think that part of it is to do with fear, apprehension, you know, the the reasons that Stephen went into. I mean, doing an interview like this is a case in point before I do these conversations and I'm talking about these ones where I, you know, it's that dynamic that we just had. There is a little internal warning, like winking away, which disappears as soon as the chat starts. And then once it's going well, and when I think that I am rewarded by those little dopamine hits until I forget the dynamics in place at all and just embrace the experience of the conversation itself and I tend to be able to recognize that point and start to enjoy it and I guess that is flow in its own little way and I've also got techniques that I try and use to initiate that scenario and I didn't really realize all that until we had this chat and I read Stephen's book so thank you Stephen, thanks for the conversation, very insightful and revealing Um, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and I hope you have finally let those jocks off the hook. Um, So what else is going on? Well, as I mentioned, it is Easter, it is sunny, I am back in the shed, um, I have had a nice week seeing my sister and her family for the first time in three and a half years, the last time I saw them was in Japan just before COVID kicked off, I remember the day very clearly because I was supposed to go at Yote with a load of friends in epic conditions in the morning I decided not to and hang out with my family instead which, you know, felt like it, on paper that's just a completely normal decision but it was actually quite a hard decision at the time being the type of dickhead that I am. And of course, everyone came down that night banging on about how it was the greatest day ever and how much I'd missed it. I think Chris Moran, my friend, told me it was in his top three runs ever, which was quite a wounder at the time. But then it turned out that was the last time I got to see my sister and her family until literally this week. So on balance, I think that was the right decision. And it's been great catching up with them. I've also been writing a story for Wavelength Magazine about the big C. And I've been musing a lot about one of my key takeaways from the whole thing which my sister actually told me the phrase for because I was explaining all this and she said, oh, that's a values gap. There's a phrase for that. It's called a values gap. And it turns out what I've been mulling over is the colossal value gap at the heart of surfing. Um, and what do I mean by this? Well, you know, if you look at the corporate level, the company level, the brand level, one of the things I've found so mad about the big C is how most of the brands have not even addressed it in this, at all. And I don't, I don't mean like, hey, everyone, we're going to bin our entire range of neoprene. I more mean like, hello, everyone. We're aware there's a problem and we're working on a solution. We'll keep you posted. I mean, I work in marketing and PR in the day job. And from that point of view, if I was advising any of these brands um, and I'm not, because I don't work with any of them, I'd be saying, you should be really talking about this quite and getting in front of it. It would be the simplest way ever. Of burnishing your environmental and sustainability credentials, instead, most of them are ignoring it and are continuing to merrily promote the same stuff they always have, and that is jarring. And that's the values gap. You know, how can you claim to be, how can you claim to be asked about this stuff when this looming issue that we know causes this real environmental damage you're not even addressing? Um, and even if it's just to address it and say that you disagree with the findings in the film at least acknowledge it. So I find that a bit mad. And then the other thing is that, you know, like at, at the influencer Instagram level, I'm seeing a lot of people out there who've basically got presences on that platform as bastions of sustainability or, you know, environmental awareness. His whole shtick is that they're at the forefront of this conversation, merrily posting pictures of themselves in limestone neoprene or products from some of the uh, the said brands who are conspicuously ignoring the, the entire massive issue. And again, I just find that it's like cognitive. There's a lot of dissonance about that. Like, again, that's an example of values got like, why would you, why would you not, why would you not like, what's all that about? And then on the local mate level, you know, I've had many conversations. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I know I bang on about it on here and I bang on about it um, on the newsletter and stuff, but, I had, I've had definitely had quite a few conversations with, with friends down here, surfing, Guardian reading, Pinko recycling, electric car driving, liberal friends who definitely see themselves as very progressive from right on, who basically have told me that they don't want to watch the film as they can't face it. So all of that I am finding completely fascinating because, um, you know, at the end of the day, whether you're a branded punter media who purports to be, like passionate about these issues of sustainability environmentalism or whatever one quick way to genuine to sort of do that would be to genuinely participate in a conversation about this fairly massive issue and acknowledge it and it's just conspicuously not happening which is um, quite telling I would say really and now that I've begun to notice this phenomenon which I'm sure is not news to a lot of people listening um, it just was news to me. I am seeing it absolutely fucking everywhere, and including in my own life, which is also interesting. So can't wait to see what happens when the film comes out. That's for sure. And like I said, I've been writing a story about it for Wavelength. There's a little bit about said values gap in that. And I'll be sharing that obviously when it's out. So that's it for this week. Um, stuff to look out for in the future. Well, I've got a few interviews coming up. I'm going to chat to Elias Hart, a friend of mine about his film and about the, issue of vulnerability in action sports i've got a chat with e britain coming up Easty's coming over we're going to catch up in london i've got i'm going to chat to stephanie nerding who i find a fascinating character in skateboarding in may i've also got a double header with maddie meddings and lucy small about their new film Yammer surf coming up and speaking of press pitches i literally just received an email before i started recording this pitching kelly slater for an episode as long as we talk about his new ayahuasca retreat i mean we'll see if that one pans out eh um but yeah as ever the best thing to do if you want to keep up we looking sideways is uh follow me on instagram at we look sideways or sign up to my Substack as a paid or free subscriber episodes are going out every sunday unless i'm on a stag do blogs open threads going out on tuesdays and the 10 Things goes out on a Friday. I'm also actively looking for new writers. And I do pay for articles that are published on 10 Things. So if you've got an idea for a story or an open thread or whatever, just hit me up. I mentioned that a few times and literally nobody has got in touch with me. Um, I mean, wh- which is weird because I, I get I get fucking endless emails asking for jobs from people. And I'm actually saying, hey, did anyone want to write for me? And no one's getting back. So let's hear it. Um, But yeah, have a good one. Enjoy Easter and I'll see you next time. Nice one.